Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today is Dr. Bruce Ashford. Dr. Ashford, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Dave, thank you. Uh, It's great to talk with you again. Yes. Well, brother, would you catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and what ministry projects are you working on these days? Yeah, so I've got a a really good year this year. uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I work, where I'm a provost and a professor, has given me a one-year leave. To write, I am going to. I've got several projects. I'm going to finish the Doctrine of Creation uh, for University Press. It'll be a big book, five or six hundred pages. I'll wrap that up, and then a Introduction to Worldview text with Broman and Holman, and then a book on the ethics of warfare on uh, the just war tradition. That'll probably be with Baker. I got some essays I'm writing. I'm writing essays on uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor, theologian Abraham Kuyper, um, and some some other folks. So it's a good year. Um, Family time is great. Since I'm on, on this uh, one-year leave, I'm able to have breakfast with my family every day for the first time in our uh, marriage and family life. So that's been great. So thanks for asking. Yeah, wonderful. I saw that you're working on quite a few projects, uh, Just War Theory and other things. You you share your books, and I am immediately attracted because of books. So I'm looking forward to those. Well, I, I, hope, I, don't dis- I hope I don't disappoint. I hope you actually like them when you read them. Uh, we'll see. Just kidding. I'm sure it'll be great. I'm sure it'll You'll be You'll be great. the judge of that. Okay, yeah. I'm sure it'll be great. Well, can you uh, please tell us about your, your book, The Gospel of Our King, the Bible Worldview and the Mission of, of Every Christian, why you wrote it and how it's being received? Yeah, so I co-authored it with one of my best friends, a guy named Heath Thomas. He's a biblical scholar, uh, Old Testament scholar to be uh, specific. And we wanted to write the book because there wasn't one like it in existence, uh, exactly like it. And so what we did, we did two major things in the book. The first, In the first half of the book, uh, which is entitled The Gospel of Our King. We uh, show that the Bible, with its 66 books and many authors and multiple genres, is actually coherent. It it coheres. It fits together. And it's got a narrative coherence, not just a systematic coherence, but a narrative coherence. The Bible comes together to make one sort of grand, um, fascinating, overarching story, and it is the true story of the whole world, we would say. And in the second half of the book, we talk about how um, the Bible is actually like a dramatic narrative. It's like a drama, and we're actors in the drama. And God has placed us on the stage in between the first and second coming of Christ. And so in light of that, how do we live? How do we live in light of the Bible's story? Right, and so out of the Bible story comes um, the gospel, and comes a Christian worldview, and also a Christian mission, like a, a um, Christians have a holistic mission in the world that our Christianity should affect every square inch of our lives. And that's what the book is about. We hope that you'll um, that you like it, that it's accessible. Um, my favorite thing about the book is I think most Christians want to be able to understand how the Bible's various books and teachings fit together, and sometimes that's really difficult. And this book, um, in an accessible way, teaches is that and then teaches us how to fit our lives into that story and live within it well um i've read it i i liked it i thought that it was accessible and uh very helpful so good job can Thank you-, you very much dave 
You're very welcome. How uh, how can you give us a brief overview of Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Restoration? Uh, yeah, you know, I'll give it my best shot. Um, our book uh, is already providing a fairly brief overview in four chapters, and so I'm going to give you a summary of the summary. And those of you out there listening just need to know that um, there's a there's a lot more to it than what I'm going to say right now. But hopefully, this will be a little bit of a teaser. So at creation, God called forth something from nothing, which is striking. He did so by means of His word. He made something out of nothing. Then the something that he called forth, he used his word to command it and to shape it into the world that we now see. So creation is ordered in a particular manner. And God wants us to live in accordance with the way he ordered it. There's a right way of doing things and a wrong way of doing things. Um, The world is ordered and also into different sectors of society and spheres of culture. So that we have uh, art and science and politics and education and sports and and, uh, family and marriage and business and so forth. And so God's ordered the world and put us, his imagers, in the world to honor him. At the fall, what happened is that uh, the evil one used a serpent to question God's word. To speak a word against God's word, Adam and Eve fell for it, and all of us since then have fallen for it. What happens is, because we fall for Satan's um, word, that he spoke against God's word, we um, direct our worship toward things that are not God, toward sex or money or power or some other false god of some sort. So then immediately after the fall, God immediately not only gives a curse, but a promise of blessing. And he offers in Genesis chapter 3, the first gospel sermon and the first gospel illustration. First gospel sermon is that he would send the seed of a woman to crush the serpent. The serpent would bruise the heel of the seed. Okay, a, a heel injury doesn't kill you. It hurts, but it doesn't kill you. But that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, would bruise, bruise the head of the serpent. But a head, a head injury can and will kill you. And then, uh, so God, that's, that's the first gospel message. The first gospel illustration is that God uh, takes an animal and sacrifices that animal and uses the skins of the animal to cover Adam and Eve. And that's a picture of uh, the seed, Jesus Christ, that he would shed his own blood in order to uh, cleanse us from our sin. And then finally, he's going to return one day to consummate his redemption, to restore um, uh, his good creation. Christ will return one day to to install a one-world government and a one-party system in which justice will roll down like the waters. He'll set the world to rights. There'll be no more sin, no more tears. And uh, this is our hope as Christians. And uh, we, we want to live our lives in such a manner that our lives provide a preview of what that day in the future will look like. Well, there you go. That's a really good explanation, brother. Very good. How important is it that we understand how worldview, gospel, and mission are understood properly only when they are set in relation to and emerge from this biblical story that you just explained. Yeah, so you know, the the concept of worldview, people use the word in a lot of different manners. Let me tell you how we use the word. Um, We would say that everyone in the world has a worldview, all right? Worldview is something very basic. It is a set of basic beliefs about the world that arises out of a shared story about the world. Muslims have a shared story about the world. Buddhists do. Hindus do. Seculars have different stories about the world. And out of those stories about the world, you know, stories that tell us where the world uh, comes from, where it's headed, what went wrong, how to fix it, how do humans fit. That's what these stories tell. And worldview is just the basic beliefs that arise out of that narrative. All right. And so uh, for a Christian, we we, we can't even talk about a Christian worldview without having a grasp of the Bible's narrative of of the shared uh, story. And the Christian gospel is the proclamation, the declaration that Christ, now the word 
died for our sins, according to the scriptures, rose from the dead and appeared to many people. First Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Right. But that word Christ, I think as Christians, sometimes we tend to, to think of it as uh, Jesus's last name, you know, as if he you know, went to the doctor's office and the lady said, well, hello, Jesus, how are you doing? I forget what's your last name. Christ. That's right. Okay, Mr. Christ, if you'll sit down, you know, for a minute, the doctor will be with you. But that's a Christ is actually a title, and it's it's a uh, basically a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, of the kingdom bringer, of uh, the, the king who would come and conquer and destroy evil and restore Israel and restore the world to the way that it ought to be. And so this gospel that is preached, that Jesus preached, and that Paul and the biblical writers preached, can't be understood unless you understand the Bible story. The Bible story is what kind of sort of culminates in that gospel. And then finally, uh, mission, the Christian mission. Uh, the Christian mission is not just or merely international missions. Sometimes that's how we use the word. It certainly does involve international missions, and we'll talk about that later. But the Christian mission is to honor God in absolutely everything we do. And that in order to honor God, you don't have to become a pastor or even a, an international missionary or, or some kind of professional religious figure. Uh, in fact, those jobs aren't any more important to you in particular, to you in particular, whoever's listening right now, than whatever job God's given you. And so take whatever job you have, whatever family you have, whatever leisure you participate in, um, every aspect of your life and leverage it for God's kingdom. And that's, uh, in order to do those things, to understand worldview and gospel and mission, you've got to understand the Bible's story. And that's what we do in the book. The book's entitled The Gospel of Our King. Yeah, it's uh, really helpful to understand i think and and as we talk about biblical theology to understand uh exactly what you said how it relates to and connects to every area of our lives um i know growing up i I had a hard time seeing that. I don't know why exactly, but uh, maybe I wasn't instructed in that. And and I, but as I've gotten older, I've I've definitely started to see more of about biblical theology. Of course, I studied the Bible in seminary, as we've talked about in the past. And and um, but uh, books like yours are, are just really helpful to help people to learn and it's it's encouraging that there is more resources out there that are coming out like your book yeah you know i never had anything in fact i graduated from seminary 20 years ago without an understanding of how the bible uh a good understanding of how the bible fits together because in those days we weren't showing uh the overarching story of the bible and we do it uh, these days and so you could look at our book as a, a, a seminary in a box you won't get everything that you would get in seminary but it it will give uh, people out there in uh uh, Christians out there an idea of what it is that we learn when we're in seminary. Yeah, it's really good. How does the Bible's radical monotheism help us understand the nature of idolatry in our secular Western world? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about Genesis chapter 1, uh, something that at 21st century Americans probably it's hard for us to grasp, is that when Moses wrote it, he was standing in, in the middle of history in a particular context in which all the nations around Israel worshipped idols that they had made with their own hands. And when we read that, we tend to think that that doesn't really apply to us today because we don't make a you know golden calf and then worship it. How ridiculous is that? But actually it applies very much because the Bible says that all of us are idolaters, that every, every person alive is a worshiper, and that all of us, apart from Christ, will actually worship false gods. Those gods can be sex or money or power or comfort or success, the approval of other people. Um, you'll know a false god. 
you can locate it when you find whatever it is that you absolutize in life. What is it that you ascribe ultimacy to? Uh, what is more important to you than anything else and that really at a deep and fundamental level shapes your behavior? And our secular age has displaced Christianity from the default position and pushed it to the margins. We still talk about Christianity a lot, but it doesn't shape us deeply the way God wants it to. And so what we want to do is to bring back monotheism, that there is only one true and living God, and we want to um, leverage that teaching and embrace that God and smash the hold that our idols have on us. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I mean, we see idol like Paul and... Uh... Athens. He's going around searching for, uh, just walking around, and he sees that you know idols, and you know he's uh, deeply disturbed. It says we should be deeply disturbed as well by the idols of our culture, and you know speak the truth uh, about about them. I mean, there's there's so many <laughs> that we could talk about: materialism, uh, pornography, just two off the top of my head. Yeah, so you know you're right about that. I think when we're locating an idol, if we just take the big three: sex, money, and power. Power. Um, you know, like we said a minute ago, you want to, you can identify those things when you're willing to um, face your life honestly and ask, what is it that you treat as ultimate rather than treating Christ as ultimate? And some other things that will help you in identifying is, is to ask, what is it that if what thing or person, if it were taken away from me, would cause me to fall apart, just absolutely fall apart? What if somebody tried to take it away from me would make me furious or angry? Um, what would cause me to, to kind of sink into a deep depression? And those kind of things can help us sort of get after our idols, because if the answer to it is success, that if God took away from me success in my vocation and I became an unsuccessful person, if that ruined my life, then that would mean that Christ isn't my greatest treasure. This success is. Same thing with the approval of other people. It could be the approval of a particular person or a group of people, a sort of subculture or maybe a, a, a social class, status group in society. Or it could be, you know, sexual pleasure. It could be any number of things. And I think one of the most important things to do spiritually is every once in a while to do an inventory of the things in life that we're tempted to make idols out of. And the, and the thing that, to remember about idols is that idols are made out of good stuff, stuff that God made. They're not bad in and of themselves. Sex and money and power and comfort and success, the approval of other people. These are the God made the world to have these things. These things should exist. Um, they don't become idols until we let them become more important than god yeah yeah how do we how do we combat this um how do we how do we how do we speak to the idols of our culture yeah you know i think first of all we have to identify them and sometimes that uh, seems easy but it can be uh, more difficult because usually you have a complex tangle of idols and so but you want to bring them to the surface we want to show people what those idols are and then we want to show how those idols are counterfeit they're fake they're not real gods and they're counterfeit gods and the counterfeit gods provide a false salvation. And not only do they provide a false salvation, they're terrible lords. They're domineering and tyrannical. Once you take some aspect of God's creation and make a god out of it, it ends up dominating your life, shaping your life from top to bottom, from stem to stern. And so as, as believers, um, one of the easiest ways to talk about sin is maybe sometimes not to start with talk about guilt, sin and guilt, but to start with talk about idolatry. Because I've, I've found that people in a secular age can sort of un intuitively Im immediately give assent to this idea that people can latch onto something and absolutize it 
and then use that one thing to sort of beat down other people or other aspects of, of God's life, of, th- the, of the life God's given us. I think that's really helpful. Really helpful. In what way is every aspect of our mission, union with Christ and the church, gospel, words, and deeds, deeply and profoundly social? Yeah, you know, uh, so in the second half of the book, the book's called The Gospel of Our King, we say that the Christian mission is uh, social. And there's a s- several different ways in which it's social. God made us to be social beings. The first way that I'll mention is that he created us to believe in Christ and then to be incorporated into his church. And so God places us in local churches where we become meaningfully involved in the lives of other people, usually um, other people that we may not have ever hung out with. God throws us into churches with people who don't aren't in the same social class or, or ethnic heritage or you know, gender and whatever, and, and teaches us and calls us to do the one another's that the Bible gives. So that's one way that we're social. Another way that we're social is that we he created us to be people who speak of the gospel and people whose actions and lives conform to the gospel. And so, you know, when we're out there in the world, we want to have uh, our words and our actions make people wonder what it is that's different about us. And so we talk about that in, uh, I think, chapter uh, six, maybe, of the book. Yeah. That's really good. Really good. You know, um, in seminary, I would often take, I would often take books and, you know, you're a seminary student, so you, you obviously read a lot. And, uh, but I would take huge piles of books for research papers and plop down in a coffee shop and read them. And people would come up to me and ask me, well, why are you doing this? And I would tell them, and then I would ask them, you know, are you, do you go to a church? And what they would say, uh, is, uh, my church is over there on the corner, you know, with my Bible study at, at the coffee shop. And I'm like, hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, probably not yeah. what's going through my head at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then we would talk about the church and whatever and, and what it is. And But there's there's people, cr- professing Christians out there who think that the church is just a Bible study. They can go to a coffee shop and, you know, just enjoy that. And, you know, certainly we're not against uh, individual study, gathering together at a coffee shop or anything like that, you know. But uh, the corporate gathering on on the Lord's Day is absolutely essential. And we see that more in the New Testament than we do individual Christians meeting together. Yeah, you're right. And when God calls us to be meaningful members of a church, like you say, a church is not just a group of people studying the Bible in a coffee shop. The Bible actually gives norms. So church is a place where, of course, the Bible is taught and preached, but it's also a place where we take the Lord's Supper together. It's a place where we disciple each other and where church discipline happens. Where if somebody um, who professes to be a Christian is in the midst of serious and ongoing sin, that they're um, disciplined by the church, called to repentance. And if they don't repent, they are placed outside of the membership of the church. So church is serious business. It's good business and, uh, and serious business, not something to be taken lightly. Yes, sir. In what in what way is every aspect of Christian mission unavoidably cultural? Yeah, you know, I hear people... You know, the word culture is used in so many different ways in our society. Sometimes when people talk about culture, they just mean bad stuff out there. You know, well, culture is bad. Or sometimes culture just means pop culture, right? Uh, People thinking about culture, they're thinking about uh, Justin Bieber, little Jay Biebs, or, uh, you know, music, movies, Hollywood. Sometimes we talk about culture, we're talking about high culture, Beethoven and Rembrandt, that kind of thing. But culture is much more basic than any of those. The Bible, one of the first commands God gives to man and woman is to till the soil, to make something out of what God made. And this is a cultural command. And it refers not only to agriculture, the literal tilling of the soil, but also to other kinds of culture. Um, but the till the soil command in the Bible 
In it, God was saying, listen, I just made the world and normed it and ordered it. Now I want you to do something with it. I want you to bring out its hidden potential. And so God is the reason that humans have developed the arts and the sciences and politics and economics and scholarship and education and business and entrepreneurship and marriage and family and so forth. And when we enter any one sphere of culture, uh, you know, I think a Christian, a Christian should want to ask at least three questions. What is God's design for this sphere of culture? Number two, how has it been corrupted by sin and idolatry? And then number three, how can I as a believer um, draw upon creation's ordering and upon biblical teaching to uh, shape that cultural activity in a way uh, that pleases God? And so you, you can't be a Christian without being a cultural being. Humans, human, human beings are fundamentally and unalterably cultural. There's no spiritual task not a single one that you can do in a way that's not cultural. Language, for example, is deeply embedded. So this, along with religion, is the most deeply embedded aspect of culture. And so even if you're just sitting in your room and praying, that's a cultural activity because you're using a human language. Hmm. So there's a few thoughts on how unavoidably, inescapably cultural the Christian life is and how uh, we should try to leverage every aspect, every cultural aspect of our life uh, to give witness to Christ. I think that's really helpful. Thank you. How is the international threat of the mission of God in colorful display in the nation of Israel, the life and ministry of Jesus, and the nature of Christ church? Yeah, you know, all through the Bible, you have this this beautiful thread, it runs through the whole Bible, of God wanting to redeem, to save worshipers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You see early on with Israel that uh, that God told Israel he wanted them, them to be a light to the nations, and he even gave them the law, this elaborate law that we see in uh in the first five, especially in the first uh, five books of the Bible, um, and that the purpose of this law was to make Israel's society so amazing and so attractive that people outside of Israel would say, we will worship their God. They don't even have a human king. You know, at the beginning of Israel's existence, they didn't have a human king. And God wanted the other nations to say, listen, look at that confederacy of tribes. They don't even have a human king, but look how peaceful and how orderly and how, uh, the, you know, their, their nation is. And look at how they flourish. We want to worship their God. And that was the purpose, that, that Israel was supposed to provoke the nations to jealousy, to make them want Yahweh Elohim. That's the Hebrew word for, you know, the, the God of Israel, for them to want to worship the God of Israel. And that thread that begins in the Old Testament leads all the way to the last uh, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which in Revelation chapters 5 and 7, we're told that um, one day when Christ returns, and he will be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in so doing, it will be demonstrated that the God of Israel is not some tribal deity, uh, but is in fact the supreme king of the entire universe. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Really good. Well, Bruce, as we wrap up this conversation about this topic, and I've really enjoyed it, uh, as always, um, and as listeners, go ahead and pick up uh, this book. Can you give them a few takeaways? Yeah, so, you know, if you're listening, uh, our book that I wrote with Heath Thomas is entitled The Gospel of Our King. We do two major things in the book, and then I'll give you some takeaways. The first is we show you how the whole Bible fits together, that the whole Bible really forms a story. A story about the world, about God and his people in the world. And we show you how to understand that story in, um, in several different acts or plot movements. And then in the second half of the book, we basically say, okay, based on that story, 
which is a dramatic narrative and in which we are actors in this big drama and we're acting um, in between the Lord's first coming and second coming. If that's true, how do we live? And that's what we try to show you in the book, how, how you can leverage every aspect of your life, socially, culturally, personally, to give honor to Christ the King. And that's a point of our of uh, the book, The Gospel of Our King. We hope you'll buy it. It's available on Amazon. It's discounted by about 33% and something that you could read in the, in the span of a week and that we think will um, help people think through uh, their calling as a Christian in our 21st century secular age. Well, I think it's a it's an incredibly helpful book. It's accessible. It's helpful. It's honestly what I've come to expect from you, brother. And I just really appreciate all that you're doing, um, both in writing and, and ministering, and you know, at your church and at Southeastern. Uh, just pray Christ's richest blessings on you, brother. Thank you, and same back to you. Really appreciate uh, Servants of Grace and, and you in particular, Dave, and everything that you're doing. And uh, hopefully you have me back on the show um, again soon. I look forward to talking. That sounds good. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.